From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you've heard the term personalized medicine or precision medicine, you may have thought such individualized treatment based on a genetic understanding of a person's disease was in the far-off future. And while there's still a lot to learn about this new approach, there's a lot that's already happening. Here to tell us more is Dr. Jeffrey Ross, the Jones-Rohner Professor of Pathology and Urology at Upstate. He's also the Medical Director for Foundation Medicine Incorporated in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome and thanks for being here. Thank you very much and hello everyone. (laughs) Well, let's look at precision medicine as it relates to someone with cancer. Um, So how does this work in this new era? In the new era, it's a complete paradigm shift. Instead of the one-size-fits-all approach and the sequential use of drugs based on the performance of the previous regimen, now we want to give each patient a custom-designed treatment that's essentially driven by the genomic makeup of their cancer. It's like if someone went into a shoe store in the past, uh, they had only one size, and it was either too big or too small, or if you were fortunate, it fit. Now we actually measure your shoe size, you know, the length and the width, and then we go back and pick out the right size that will fit when you walk out of the store. Oh, that is a paradigm shift. That's a huge change. So all along, I mean, it seems like we've heard about, you know, standardized trials, and we do all these studies to find out, well, this is the drug that works for this particular cancer. And while we're not really throwing that away, we're not looking at it that way anymore, right? Not, not as much. Um, this December will be the 20th anniversary of what many of us call the first ever uh, of these precision or personalized treatments, which was when on a single day in, in Gaithersburg, Maryland, where the US FDA is located, on one side of the street, the anti-HER2 breast cancer drug Herceptin was approved, which had in its label that a test called the Hercept test had to be done, and only patients who tested positively would be eligible to receive the treatment. And on the other side of the street, in what's known as the Office of In Vitro Diagnostics and Implanted Devices, the FDA approved the DACO Hercept test, the actual test, but in its label it said that the test was only designed to select patients for eligibility to be treated with the anti-HER2 drug that was being approved on the same day uh, on the other side of the street. And that was 20 years ago. Exactly, December of 1998. So that was called the first companion diagnostic companion or friends. The drug and the test were friends. They worked together. They were always together. You didn't give the drug unless the test was positive, and you withheld the drug if the test was negative. Interesting. And that, wow. Well, do we, have these um, medications been around long enough to know whether they have more success using like a genomic selected medication versus yes there the, the there certainly was no question that the uh, the the overall survival of women with metastatic breast cancer that had this her2 alteration which happens about one in five about 20 percent um, if it was there and they were treated with the anti-HER2 therapies, their outcome changed dramatically. It almost became uh, better to have the HER2 positive disease at this stage rather than to have the HER2 negative because you had the opportunity to be treated with the special drug. Now, that's been repeated many, many times, and in many different types of cancers, not just breast cancer. 
colon cancer, lung cancer, um, leukemia and lymphoma, all different types of cancers now have companion diagnostics, and it's growing in an enormous rate. Uh, the amount of investment from pharmaceutical companies in developing these targeted, as we call them, therapies or precision therapies is measured in the tens of billions of dollars now. This wow. is the paradigm. And, and one of the reasons why it's so attractive to the, to the pharmaceutical companies is when you can match a patient's cancer driven by a, a certain abnormal gene to a drug that particularly is effective when that alteration is present, the patient often transitions from what's an acute and possibly fatal disease into a cr chronic and livable disease and the drug is in what's known as maintenance, meaning the patient never goes off but lives months or years or tens of years while still on the drug, which makes that, of course, very attractive to drug makers because in the past, cancer drugs were only effective for a very short period of time, and so you didn't get to sell them to the patients for very long. But now the same drugs are being used for the patient for years, and now the pharmaceutical company makes a substantial profit because of that. And it turns it into a chronic condition. Yeah. I, I would say the day before the her, her two and her septin approvals came, cancer was the least popular disease for drug makers to make drugs against. It just wasn't very profitable. The patients just didn't live long enough. Now cancer is the number one disease that the major pharmaceutical companies are making drugs against because they're almost all that get approved become billion-dollar bestsellers. Now, is, when we talk about precision medicine, is it always a, to a pharmaceutical treatment? Or, or, I mean, what about radiation or surgery? Are those part of the equation still? Or so no? certainly by far the most direct application from learning the genomic underpinnings of a patient's cancer by sequencing the DNA that's taken out of their cancer cells applies to medical oncology, to anti-cancer drugs that are, that are ordered and administered by medical oncologists. There are some applications for radiation oncology, and more are emerging. And this is particularly true of the use of immunotherapy, the newest uh, type of anti-cancer therapy that also is precision-driven and personalized by a DNA sequencing of patients' cancer. Radiation treatments are starting to be used for patients to boost their ability to respond to immunotherapy. The radiation is given to increase the number of mutations in the patient's cancer, which will then immunize the patient against their own cancer. And then when the immunotherapy drugs are given, the patient starts to reject their own cancer like it was a transplanted organ from an unrelated wow. donor. So it boosts their immune it system. So, they, wow. so it's getting impacted. Surgical oncology, a bit less so. Um, for patients with early stage cancer, surgery remains without any question the cornerstone first attempt to cure the disease. What I'm talking about is essentially people who can't be cured by the surgeon. If they're cured by the surgeon, they don't need precision therapy anymore or personalized therapy anymore. Their disease has been removed. 
So this is really only for patients in whom, unfortunately, they presented too early and the surgeon couldn't cure them when they first had symptoms, or they had surgery and an attempted cure, but unfortunately, they relapsed and now need medical treatment. Okay. Right. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate's Dr. Jeffrey Ross about this era we're in of precision medicine, um, particularly with regard to cancer. Um, we've become used to dividing cancers by where they originated, breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, you know, wherever they were discovered in the body first. But is the site of origin still important, or are we changing what's what matters for That's diagnosis? That's a wonderful question. For early stage cancer, cancer diagnosed before it has spread, site of origin is critical because that directs the surgeon to where they can remove the disease and prevent the patient from suffering a relapse or have it spread to other sites. But once the disease has spread uh, to multiple sites or throughout the body, the original site of origin is becoming less important than it used to be. Uh, certainly there are some cancer types where finding site of origin is critical for people with metastatic disease, and that would especially be women with breast cancer and men with prostate cancer because hormonal therapy is effective for those patients, whereas it isn't for cancers of non-breast or non-prostate. After that, this is where we're starting to think that it's the genomic drivers that are more important than the site of origin. Last uh, May, for the first time in history, May of 2017, the US FDA for the first time approved an anti-cancer drug that was agnostic as to the site of origin, which was the term the FDA used. It meant the patient's cancer could have started anywhere could be a brain tumor, a breast cancer, a colon cancer, could be prostate or lung or pancreas. It didn't matter as long as they had this condition called microsatellite instability high, which to translate that means a cancer whose DNA is very unstable and constantly mutating and easily being broken by just about anything. They are very sensitive to immunotherapy. Because as their DNA constantly mutates, they make proteins from the mutations and those immunize themselves against their own cancer. So then when they get the immunotherapy drug that releases their uh, rejecting cells, they get a dramatic and long-term uh, uh, response. So that's called MSI high, and that one does not require that you know where the cancer started. We think there'll be at least one more in the next few months, and we call them pan-cancer approvals, uh, meaning all cancer types, doesn't matter what type, just as long as they have this genomic alteration, like MSI high, the next one's going to call be called NTRAC, N-T-R-K. Any patient with an NTRAC mutation is going to be eligible to receive an NTRAC drug, which is dramatically effective for, the, for those patients. And it won't matter whether it's lung cancer or any other kind of cancer. As you talk about um, dividing cancers into genomic drivers, it makes me wonder um, how that's going to impact screening. Um, colonoscopies, pap smears, mammograms, will those matter in the future? Well, the cr 
current use of the cancer genomics has been for patients with established cancers. So it hasn't been used to try to detect the disease early, except in the research setting. Oh, okay. But in the research setting, there are uh, universities and for-profit companies at early in, early and late stages uh, that are trying to use ultra-sensitive techniques to detect circulating mutations in blood before the patient has any symptoms you, or when the uh, disease that used to present as advanced, we can now detect it as early and, and, and operate and cure the patient. Uh, diseases like ovarian cancer or possibly pancreatic cancer or lung cancer. So we are trying to apply the same techniques for screening, but they're far, far behind the applications for established cancer. But that may be in the future. It, it will be in do. the future. Why? Well, tell me about liquid biopsies. So the liquid biopsy is a blood test uh, very much the same as other blood tests when you start out. But instead of measuring chemi chemicals or looking at the red cells and white blood cells, the kind of things we normally do with blood samples for diagnostics, instead we do DNA and RNA sequencing the same way we do with tissues. We extract from the liquid sample all the DNA and sometimes the RNA, but mostly the DNA that's in the blood and try to use it to help us guide treatment the same way we do when we have the actual tissue sample from the patient's cancer. So does this take the place of a surgical biopsy? It's not ready to do that yet. It has technical limitations. Um, the amount of circulating DNA, which we sometimes call cell-free DNA, or circulating tumor DNA is minute. There's so little there that the ability of the test to do deep, elaborate evaluations is not as good as when you have a tissue sample that has far more cancer DNA in it. But some patients, getting a sample is very risky. Um, the, the, the feeling is go after it in the blood first, and if you don't get it, then maybe then try to get the tissue, but save them the procedure, uh, the cost of the procedure, and the risk of the procedure, and try blood first. It's particularly good for patients who have had the identification of a mutation in the past and been put on one of these targeted or precision therapies Perhaps they did well for a year or, or two, and now their disease has started to grow again. That usually means they've developed a new resistance mutation that's making the drug they're on not work anymore. But before we can be certain of that, we need to see that resistance mutation. The blood sample or liquid biopsy is an excellent way to detect that. And for lung cancer patients, one of the classic examples of this, they have a mutation in a gene called EGFR, or epidermal growth factor receptor. In the United States, we may see that in 10 to 15% of all our lung cancers. Um, it's much more common in Americans of Asian descent. In China, 60% of lung mm. cancer has EGFR mutations. So it's pretty frequent. You put the patient on an anti-EGFR drug. It's called a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. 
examples are the drugs erlotinib, gefitinib, and afatinib. And they will work really well for some period of time. But a specific mutation called the T790M occurs and it stops those drugs from working. But later on, another drug was developed that targets the T790M mutation. So when a patient's cancer that's EGFR-driven responds to the first EGFR inhibitor, but then progresses, we go and look for T790M. And it explains about 60 to 70% of the new progression of the disease and you can detect it in the blood about 75% of the time. So why get a new biopsy when the blood's gonna give you the answer three times out of four? Sure. So we always start with that. And that's an example of how we're using liquid biopsy right now. Interesting. Well, um, one of your roles here at Upstate is a member of the Molecular Tumor Board. Can you tell us what that is and um, how it helps? Certainly. I mean, tumor boards were and still are an important part of cancer care at Upstate, uh, often subspecialized, the lung cancer tumor board, the genitourinary cancer tumor board, the gastrointestinal cancer tumor board. And the classic type you have medical oncologists, surgeons, radiation oncologists, pathologists, and diagnostic radiologists all present. The Referring physician gives the patient history, the radiologist shows the diagnostic x-ray images, the pathologist shows the microscopic histology, and then the discussion, uh, how should we go forward? Should we do this operation or that operation? Should we radiate first and then operate? Should we give chemotherapy first and then operate? That's a classic tumor board. The molecular tumor board adds one more component, which is that patient's tissue has been sequenced and the genomic alterations are known. So a molecular pathologist is also present at the event who describes the mutations and how they might impact treatment selection. So the traditional tumor boards are particularly useful for early stage disease. To plan surgery, to decide whether adjuvant or neoadjuvant treatments going to be done. The molecular tumor boards are more focused on the unfortunate patients who now have metastatic uh, uh, disease and who maybe have recently progressed and need a new treatment. And the molecular pathologist is there to say, well, we have this target or we have that target or immunotherapy might work, something like that. Interesting. Well, it's fascinating. I appreciate you being here. My guest has been Dr. Uh, Jeffrey Ross, a professor of pathology and neurology at Upstate and the medical director for Foundation Medicine Incorporated in Cambridge, Mass. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.